Father, we thank you for speaking to us in the reading of the word and we ask now that you would bring our minds back to it and help us to focus on your son, uh, what he has done uh, and on what this says to us about the present life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, I didn't even know what I would talk about when I wrote that heading down, but um, I'm sorry to South African cricket fans. Uh, However, they have provided me with an opportunity to speak here. Uh, South Africa, as you might know, if you are a cricket fan, is an extremely good cricket team, which just has this unfortunate habit of not quite performing in the big matches. Uh, And yet again, Australia have managed to uh, sneak through the... uh, the World Cup semi-final against South Africa to make it to the final. I'm not sure how we're going to go against India, but poor old South Africa have again snatched uh, defeat from the jaws of victory. And from a worldly viewpoint, uh, in what Jesus says in today's passage, you could almost feel that Jesus is intent on snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Jesus here, uh, at this point in the Gospel... He seems to be on the brink of a triumph, doesn't he? Uh, We we know that there are plans to kill Jesus. We know that uh, he's come into harm's way by travelling back to Jerusalem. But at this point in the narrative, here we are in John chapter 12, the danger that Jesus is in, it seems to have receded, doesn't it? He's just performed a stunning miracle in the raising of Lazarus which has caused many people to become his supporters. And he's now made this triumphal entry into Jerusalem where all his supporters were out there in force. In light of this, you you could imagine the disciples might be thinking, look, perhaps all of these death threats against Jesus will come to nothing. Perhaps this surging wave of support for Jesus will just grow and grow. That is certainly how the opponents were feeling, as we saw last week. They felt that they were losing and that the whole world was going after Jesus. Today's passage opens with a significant example of the world going after Jesus. Some Greeks were asking to see him. Now, do you see what a major moment this was? Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and even though he has come to save the whole world... It's very difficult even today to persuade someone from a foreign culture that Jesus is relevant to them. Well, the same would have been the case back then, even more so. Most Greeks would just not have seen the relevance of this Jewish holy man to themselves. Yet here were a pair of Greeks asking to see Jesus. To the disciples, this might have felt like the beginnings of Jesus going global. It feels as though Jesus is on the brink of a triumph here. And yet, Jesus took the visit of these Greeks as a turning point of a very different kind, not towards him going global, but instead, he says in verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And a very strange hour of glory it's to be because what Jesus meant was his crucifixion. The hour to which John's gospel is tracking, the the hour for him to be glorified is his death. 
Jesus likens his coming death to a grain of wheat. A grain of wheat can't multiply unless it falls to the ground and dies. In other words, unless it's planted in the earth as a seed. Now, notice that this is a remarkably true saying because a seed is not in itself a living thing. It it is dead, yet it's got this miraculous property of being able to burst into life when the conditions are right. And as you know, the, the result of a wheat seed sprouting and growing to maturity is that there are many wheat seeds which grow from it. Whereas if that original wheat seed, supposing that it had a personality, had been too proud or too afraid or too whatever to fall to the ground and die, well then it would never have multiplied into the many. In the same way, if Jesus had not submitted himself to death, He would have remained the one and only human who was pleasing to God, the one and only human who was in right standing with God. And therefore, because none of us deserves to get into heaven on our own steam, nobody else but Jesus would have been able to enter into God's heaven. This was the only way that the one godly man could be turned into the great multitude Well, Jesus then went on to explain the implications of all this to his followers. If he is about to die, what does that mean for his followers? And the answer is in verse 25. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, Jesus gave his life in this world for the sake of our lives in the next world. So if we're his followers, we will also be the ones who let go of this life in order to gain the next. Now this sort of language will be somewhat familiar to us if we're from a Christian culture, but it must have been very alien to his original hearers. There was a lot in Judaism which was richly positive about this present world, not least today's psalm, which is a beautiful picture, isn't it, of a godly household. Your wife will be a fruitful vine. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. What's to hate about that? To hate one's life in this world, that is, a, that is a jarring idea, isn't it? It's meant to be jarring. So I want to ask a big question here. What, what sort of world must this be? What sort of world must this be that we are living in if Jesus says anyone who loves their life in this world will lose it? Do you feel a question here? When Jesus is saying don't live for this world... And when Jesus says, in fact, for my sake, hate your life in this world, what, what sort of a life is this then? Surely Jesus must be saying here that this world is horribly compromised. Well, the powerful answer comes in verse 31, where Jesus explains what his coming hour of glory, his death, will achieve. 
Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Who is the prince of this world that he's talking about? Well, it's Satan, isn't it? It's the devil. If you want to know why this world is horribly compromised, it's because this world is occupied territory. It was invaded by God's enemy, Satan, and through his cunning, Satan got himself into a position of domination over the human race. I want you to know I sometimes feel a bit defensive when I'm speaking about the devil because a sense that some people just don't want to believe that this is part of Christian doctrine. Maybe because they feel they're a bit too scientific for the devil or that the devil, uh, you know, is a little bit too medieval these days or they're just uncomfortable for reasons that they can't explain. But it is profoundly reasonable to believe in the devil, first of all because Jesus clearly taught that the devil is a reality. And Jesus, above all people, would know. But secondly, don't you think it makes perfect sense of our experience in this world? That we're living in, the Christian message is we are living in a world that was made by a good God and which was invaded by God's enemy who wants to spoil his work. Now just come back to Psalm 128. Family life can be profoundly good, a wonderful creation and a gift of God. But the the fruitful vine thing doesn't happen for everyone, does it? And uh, others have lost one of their little olive shoots, whether through estrangement or whatever. If there were no God at all, then suffering is just a meaningless piece of bad luck and the prognosis would be just to move on and enjoy yourself as best you can. If there were a God but no devil... Suffering would be even harder to account for, wouldn't it? Perhaps we'd be forced to say that God had lost control of his world. But if this world has been created by a good God and invaded by a devil who wants to spoil God's plans, well, that would make some sense of our experience, wouldn't it? There are still questions, of course, like why does it take God so long to cast the devil out? But we've got the nucleus of a satisfying explanation. So here you see now why this world is so horribly compromised. It's because the world has become occupied territory. It's infested with the murderous regime of Satan himself. God, of course, can wipe the devil away in any instant, but there's only one way that God could end the devil's regime in such a way that we would not be consumed in the judgment as well. And that is the sin-bearing death that Jesus has talked about in terms of the seed falling to the ground. That death disarmed the devil because the devil's weapon is God's judgment, which the devil brings upon us by tempting us to sin. 
Jesus' death takes away God's judgment from everyone who follows Jesus. It's in that way that Jesus' death drove out the imposter, drove out the tyrant, the devil, who had seized control of this world. Now, we also need to understand that even for us here 2,000 years later, the devil's final condemnation is still in the future. Even now, he still has the power to tempt and deceive and to draw people away from Jesus. But every believer has been rescued out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the son that he loves. So do you see now why it is that Jesus says these incredibly radical things here, that I'm to hate my life in this world in order to keep it for eternal life? It's not just that there's life after death, but that the present world is what we are saved out of in order to gain that life after death. We're saved out of it by Jesus and we're to follow Jesus. The instructions that Jesus gives here are radical and they're difficult. He speaks of following him, he speaks of serving him, and he speaks of living for the next life. But if we've taken to heart what Jesus teaches here, I think it will come quite naturally to us, won't it, to want to follow him and serve him and live for the next life. So I'd like to finish by trying to help us practically with these instructions. How will we do these things? Well, first of all, keep training yourself with these doctrines. Keep reminding yourself that you've been delivered from the kingdom of darkness and set your minds on things above. Decide that you're not going to have FOMO, the fear of missing out. Because here in this world... We don't, need to, we don't need to have the fear of missing out on enjoyment here because Jesus has secured our eternal life. Try to live in such a way that your family and your friends will notice that you're not living for this world, but you're living for the next. Show that you're not desperate to acquire and consume everything that this world has to offer. Second of all, let's take seriously to heart the promise of Jesus in verse 26. I love this verse. It's it's given me a, a lot of joy this week. Jesus says, if anyone will serve me, my father will honor him or honor them. Now, that is what as Christians we're invited to do, to serve Jesus, which means I'm here to do what he wants. I'm here to be engaged in his work and to make him look good. And the reward is that the Father will honour me. Wow. The Father will honour me in front of his angels. That's something to make up on the school prizes you missed out on, isn't it? The concept of service is not one that we understand very well these days because we don't live with masters and servants. But I think there is a wonderful picture of service in Carson, the old butler from Downton Abbey. Uh, Downton Abbey, as you probably know, is an upstairs, downstairs style drama that was made 10 or 15 years ago. It's set on a landed estate in England 
uh, in the early part of the 20th century. And uh, the thing that I find amazing about Carson, the butler, is his absolute devotion to his master, Mr. Crawley. Carson has never married. He's never had a family of his own. He seems to derive all of his meaning in life from doing what is best for his master and making his master look good. I'm sure butlers are not like that in real life. But it's a helpful illustration of what we're to be like with Jesus. He is our master. We're his servants. We're involved in his pursuits, not our own. And his primary pursuit in the world, of course, is it's the work that he died for, isn't it? It's the work of saving his people by preaching the gospel and building his church. That's the work that his servants are to be engaged in. And the Father will honour us. Just take that verse with you and be encouraged. Finally, the manner of service is that we take up our cross. Which means that this entire life is to be like that walk which Jesus walked, carrying his cross to Calvary where he would die. The walk of a condemned person. Jesus was condemned in this world. Why should it be any different for his followers? The strong words of Jesus, aren't they? And we mustn't water them down. I mean, what I don't want us to do is to fool ourselves into thinking that we are living this way when really... I mean, would your family and friends be able to tell that you are living as Jesus' servant with your focal purpose on the next life, not this one? And being willing to to, to live this life as a condemned person? Or do you, like me, feel that you're a rather poor servant? If that's the case, it's better to admit it and ask for God's help. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus says, take up your cross daily. The daily shows us that taking up our cross, well, it needs to be done daily. I've written a prayer that I hope you will keep and pray each morning. It's just a short prayer. And I'll finish today by praying it. So if you agree with it, then say amen with me at the end. Lord Jesus, I take up my cross to follow you this day. Enable me to live as your servant not loving my own life in this world, but instead following you in your mission to save many for the life which lasts forever. Amen.